good Sunday morning. Welcome to another edition of the Sideline Junkie Sunday Rise. It's me, it's me, it's the big guy KG. Happy Father's Day. Happy Juneteenth. We double celebrating the day. I'm with it. Hopefully you with it because we got something special coming up for you today. The Midnight Rider will be joining me very, very shortly. And I'm going to pass the mic off to him and I'm going to sit back and I'm going to be the interviewee to his interviewer. So this is going to be great. And here he is right now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the Midnight Rider. Yo, yo, yo. He wasn't even supposed to um, kill the seed, man. Kill the lead on this. Well, it, only reason why I had to, because it, it, it get it's that 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 gap in there, man. It's like a forty-five second gap after I started before y'all able to come in. I got you. I got you. Nah. So, um, for those listening, like I kind of wanted to just sit down because I know that a man that calls himself the DC sports connoisseur going into Canton is like a special thing. Um, if you're a fan of sports like I know we are, it's it's going to be a thing where um, you're going to be a kid and you're going to be a fan and then you're going to be able to appreciate the moment. So what I wanted to do with you, um, KG, is just kind of get that experience from your point of view because some of us may not make it to um, Canton and we'll see Canton for ourselves. You dig where I'm coming from? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely I do. So, so I mean, again, this is BC, Ben Conti, a.k.a. The Midnight Writer, having a nice little conversation with our guy, the man, the myth, the legend, um, KG. So we're going to talk about his Canton trip and everything that's going on. So if you don't mind, let's go ahead and start, get started, bro. Let's go. All right. So first question. Like, I'm a weird person. I kind of take still things from, like, the knuckleheads. Always like to ask questions about, like, what you went to or what got you started. So for you, going into Canton, what was the first thing that you had to see? The first thing I had to see, honestly, hmm, it had to be the, the first thing that I had to see that I knew I needed to see before that, you know, that tour ended was I had to go and I had to see Art Monk and Daryl Green's bus. That was like a big thing for me. Okay. Because okay. it's a long time coming. Right. So then I'm going to go ahead and mention you off because I know you had a, like a laundry list. So what else was on that laundry list of things that you wanted to see um, on this trip that came? It could be risk and related. It could be just in general as a fan Let's kind of break some of that down for us well being a historian that i am you know it was a lot of stuff that they had they went in order from the start of the nfl all the way up until today and going through and seeing you know johnny united's jersey i'm a big johnny united's fan everybody say how you never watched him play watching uh the, the the clip shows um god what was the name of it you know stuff you, right and you hearing johnny united's talk seeing him and living so close to baltimore most of my life you you know about the greatness of the colts so any colts memorabilia is always my thing and 
seeing that and the game ball from the greatest game ever played, the 58 championship. I had to see that. Um, being able to see, uh, I was hoping to see Chief Z in the fan section, but he wasn't in the fan section, which kind of disappointed me a little bit. I think that was the only disappointing thing because I could have sworn he was elected as one of the NFL's biggest fans. But it could be for, you know, reasons unknown or reasons that are known. Um, the breakdown of some of the greatest games of all time, the sneaker game, uh, the sea of hands game, the holy roller game. A lot of these games involve the Raiders, I, I noticed. I've always noticed that. A lot of great games always involve the Raiders. Uh, seeing Hank Stram's playbook, like, I had to take a picture of that because I was like, wow, it's just a simple notebook with a diagram of a play on one page. It's not, it doesn't have, you know, 12 squares and 12 different plays and this format. It's a simple one play, one page, everybody's assignment, and that's it. Hey, you got to matriculate the football, babe. You got to matriculate the football. That, that right there, and, you know, just to see the evolution of the game. And, you know, Doug Williams' helmet was there from Super Bowl uh, 22. There you go. That's what I was waiting for you to say. Yeah, I that was. you being the, the risk in football team commanders fan that you are. I know Doug had to be somewhere in your journey. Yes. Go ahead and talk about that. Like, Because um, one of the biggest things that came from that Super Bowl I think there was the infamous question was like, how does it feel to be a black quarterback or how does it feel being black and playing quarterback in the Super Bowl? Um, it was one of the worst questions ever asked of a man, but uh, Doug handled with class. So kind of talk about that just experience itself. That right there. And the, the thing is, it, they didn't really – you got more Doug Williams in the Black College Hall of Fame section than you did in the 80s in the Super Bowl section. I mean, you've seen the helmet. They had a little blurb about, you know, him coming in and igniting one of the greatest quarters in Super Bowl history, 35 points, 18 plays, 35 points. Uh, But that, you know, it, it's – Doug Williams is not represented as much in the Hall of Fame. I mean, of course, career-wise – you wouldn't say, you know, oh, well, he's a Hall of Famer. Right. Impact-wise, you know, what he did in that game and putting that that myth to rest, as uh, they said on that broadcast, Frank Herzog and, and, and uh, Sonny Jergson, that he put the myth to rest that a black quarterback can win and lead a team. Uh, he just wasn't really represented a lot. You know, they had a – man, this, this had to be about – nine feet tall picture of him walking off the field uh that was you know in the 80s section uh but in the black college football hall of fame section they had him at grambling and talked about eddie robinson and you know he finished fourth in the heisman voting but most people don't remember that you know and just the representation of the washington Redskins, Commanders, football team, whatever. You, well, at that time, 
the representation of the Washington Redskins was very sparse. Let's just say that it wasn't a lot. Um, of course, they talked about the 70, uh, 72 Dolphins, and of course, they beat the Washington Redskins. That was plastered everywhere. Uh, Garo, your premium ties were hanging up in the Hall of Fame, which was crazy because I never knew he had a line of ties. He actually had a line of ties. I was like, wow, everybody got in on it. Make your money. Um, right. Don Shula's game shirt and Larry Zonka's shoes. But as far as Washington goes, it wasn't a lot there. You know, they had the uh, spotlight on John Riggins. So they took his bus out of the, you know, out of the room where all the bus were. And they put him in a spotlight showcase. But they had most mostly jet memorabilia there. In, in that case, it wasn't really a lot of redskin memorabilia. It was mostly jet. And I was like, okay. Yeah, he did play with the Jets. Was very well, very good with the Jets. But he made his, yeah, he made his impact with Washington. Where's the Washington memorabilia? You know, it was just. But you, 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 you got also got to understand we're going through a name change, and everything is changing. So they're trying to. It's like they're trying to erase that redskin connotation, right? And they're trying to keep it at. You know, okay, we're gonna either call them the commanders or the football team or just Washington. So Okay. So so like if you're going as a visitor, are you gonna see stuff where it's like heavy team related in terms of like sectioned off by teams? Is it sectioned off by the player themselves? Like how is like the Hall of Fame kind of set up? Like when you walk around, kind of just give us a feel for what you were seeing. Okay, now, number one, when you walk in the door, you don't go into the main entrance anymore because they've expanded so much. The main entrance is blocked off. I got pictures of the main entrance, this place, and I I kept saying it, that main hall, I've only dreamed of this place since I was a kid. And to actually walk in there, you walk in, you start the tour. Make sure you go to the bathroom before you start the tour, please. (laughs) Because it's, I, I, I was like, man, it's small, but I forgot there was an upstairs and then you come downstairs and then you go upstairs again and then you come back downstairs. So oh, okay. it, it, it's huge. And you walk in and they have this mural on the wall. And I, I posted it on Instagram and Facebook. And it starts off with, uh, man, where is it at? I, it starts off with um, Peyton Manning. Then it goes to Ray Lewis. Then you go, you walk down the hall a little bit more. It's Jerry Rice, Reggie White, Lawrence Taylor, Anthony Munoz, Joe Montana, Walter Payton, Mean Joe Green, Deacon Jones, uh, 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 Jim Brown, Dick Knight Train Lane, Don Hudson, uh, Sammy Ball, and then finally Red Grange. It's like all the stars of, of the eras. And it's just a long line. And then you go in and it starts you from the beginning. It starts you from the 20s and the first contract. Uh, and it's separated in the years. You got the 20s, the 30s, you know, it's just decades. So and it talks about like the story, like a storyline or a storybook. Yeah. And it, it, it puts everything in. And when I tell you, 
you got uh, 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 Jim Thorpe. You have his, uh, what he wore on the sideline, the sweater that he wore on the sideline. You know, you got so much stuff, and all this stuff is encased in glass, of course. But it's so many things, and you look. Did you know that they used to give out, for MVP, they used to give out a championship belt? Nah, okay. I didn't. They gave out a championship belt, I think, until, like, the late 60s. You got an actual championship belt. I said, what? Okay. And it, it was gold with rubies man it, it was nice it was nice uh the championship trophy the evolution of the championship trophies man just great and then one thing they didn't they didn't shy away from they talked about the afl but they also talked about before there was the nfl you had the aafc you talked about the browns you know going to 10 straight uh yeah, championships, and they, you know, you had Sid Luckman, Otto Graham, you had these great players. And once they came into the NFL, they continued dominating. You know, they, you get into the 30s and the 40s. And matter of fact, in the 30s, they were talking about the Washington, well, at the time, the Boston Braves in 32, and how they came into the league. And they moved away because they couldn't get uh, in Boston. They won, I think they wanted to play at Fenway, and they couldn't sell it out, so they moved the game to New York, and they were heavily favored in the game and got smashed. And I was like, wow. And then they had letterhead, and I, I got pictures of it, letterhead of Washington Redskins, the original logo when they first moved to D.C., and it was just actual office letterhead. And I said, Wow. This, this is crazy. Like, just the behind-the-scenes things that you didn't know happened. And, of course, they talked about the, the, the Bears championship where the Bears beat the, uh, the Redskins 73 to nothing. And I always right. tell the boss, BJ, I say that's the worst loss in franchise history. He always asks me what's the worst modern loss. And he talks about the Cowboy game from last year. I tell him, I say, man, the worst loss in franchise history will always be 73 to nothing. Yeah, they came back around and they did. Uh, they beat them 72 to 41, most points scored in the NFL game ever. But not, and nothing will ever erase 73 to nothing. The only thing that can erase that is coming back and beating Chicago in the NFC Championship game now, 75 nothing. That's the only thing that can erase that. But you go through that. You know, you go through the commissionership of Burt Bell, who was the former owner of the Eagles. Um, man, it's just, it's absolutely beautiful when you start going through the years. And this, I had books on this stuff, but to see the actual memorabilia that's associated with it, the championship trophies. All the teams that came before, the Canton Bulldogs, all the teams that started the NFL, you know, that didn't make it when the Steelers and the Eagles had to combine because of the war and they became the Steagles. You know, right. that whole story. Then you go a little bit further and you start getting into the Super Bowl era. And you get into that. And all of a sudden, it's like everything changes and you start seeing. Pittsburgh rise up. 
and you see more stuff from Terry Bradshaw, Lynn Swan, and you're walking around, you're like, wow. And this room takes you in a circle, but you get kind of lost because if you follow the wall around and let it take you in a circle, you turn around and you look, and you're like, I'm back where I started at. What the hell? And you don't know how you got there because you're so focused on going around in a circle. Then, right. so it sounds, it sounds like the walls, if like the walls have voices, they're telling you the story of the league as you walk in this circle. So you become so engrossed in the story that it's telling you that you don't even know that you've made a full loop. Exactly. And then, wow. surprise. Surprisingly, at the end of that loop, they have Pat Tillman's jersey. And I was like, wow, this 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 is Pat Tillman's jersey. And for those that only know Pat Tillman as, oh, he was just an NFL player who gave up money to go join the military and lost his life. Nah, as a football player, you talk about intensity. That dude had intensity. And he he could have continued to play football, and I think he would have been a, a great player as well. Um, but him having his own display case, absolutely beautiful, man. Because he 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 means a lot on so many different levels, and always meant a lot to me on many different levels. And you 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 finish that, then you go upstairs. And when you go upstairs, it kind of continues a little bit more and you get a little bit deeper into the Super Bowl era. But you get upstairs and they have four footballs. It's Troy Aikman, Warren Moon, Jim Kelly, and I think Dan Marino. And you can measure your hands on the football and how they grip a football. And I, I had to laugh. I said, my hands are bigger than Troy Aikman's. My hands are bigger than Jim Kelly's. And my hands are almost big as uh, Warren Moon's. And but I, it was like the way that they they grip a football to throw. I'm like, wow, that's kind of awkward. But damn, they're all Hall of Fame quarterbacks. Then you can you can uh, see who had the biggest arms in NFL history, who had the biggest legs, you know. And you go along the wall. And then they start talking about little obscure things that happen in NFL history. Those great games we talked about. The sea of hands, the holy roller, the immaculate reception. You know, you, you have these great games that happen and these individuals who signed and donated pieces to the, 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 the Hall of Fame. And you go through and you see all this stuff and you just like, Okay, I remember this. I remember this. Uh, Eric Dickerson's, um, his goggles and his jersey from his rookie year are in the Hall of Fame. Because, nope, 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 I'm lying. Not rookie year. Uh, what was that? 84. The year he ran for uh, 2005. Uh, and that's there. Um, Steve McNair's jersey there. And hopefully one day Steve McNair will actually be there. You know, I'm, I'm hoping for that. Uh, hold on, let me go back because I, I got it all. I got it all in chronological nah, you order. Good, you good. Take your time, man. It's it's the Sunday morning rise podcast. Um, sideline junkies, midnight rider, KG. Just kind of do a little walk through his Hall of Fame tour. 
I'd be negligent if I forgot to say um, happy Father's Day to you and all the listeners that are listening right now. Um, definitely got to give them that. Um, and go ahead, man. Just go ahead and get your thoughts together and let's finish this up, man. Oh, I got you. And happy Father's Day to you, too. Thank you. No problem, man. Uh, they actually have Tim Tebow's jersey from that uh that Pittsburgh oh, Steelers that- game when he threw the touchdown. Yeah. Right. They have his jersey in the Hall of Fame. That's the only way he's getting there, unless he buys yeah, tickets. Yeah, let's just say that. Dude, <laughs> and you wouldn't realize how many, how many uh people have ha- how many people have um cereals. John Elway okay. has a cereal had a cereal called Comeback Crunch. <laughs> uh he had a cereal. Um, I think. Mark Brunel had a cereal. Everybody had cereals called Comeback Crunch. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. Um, the first piece of AstroTurf is actually in the Hall of Fame, which is crazy. They have a a, a display with the evolution of shoulder pads. And to look at what shoulder pads used to be compared to what they are. And, you know, for us, us that grew up in, the late 80s, early 90s, compared to now, shoulder pads are a lot smaller now than they were in the 80s and 90s. But think about this. When they first started playing football, you just had a couple straps and maybe a layer of leather. And that was it. You know, then they they had the, the helmets and everything, how helmets were. And the Rams were actually the first team to have a logo on their helmet. That's the only type of stuff you get at the Hall of Fame, man. Yeah. It's like stuff like that, man. And so the evolutions you talk about, um, I don't know if you made it to this case, but the one that intrigued me the most um, that I saw, I think was in your pictures, was the evolution of the championship rings. How we've gone from like all gold rings to now teams have like 40, 50 diamonds in them. Can you talk about that if you remember seeing that? Yeah, I, I do. Oh my God. You go from Super Bowl one and it's a gold ring, one diamond set in the middle. And it's small, it's inconspicuous, it looks like a class ring. And then you go to year before last or, or Tampa Bay Super Bowl ring. And how big that thing's big as a hubcap. <laughs> like it's huge, man. And I'm just like, wow, we've went that far as far as, you know, rings go. And it's it's absolutely crazy that we've gotten that far. And, it, you know, you go and they start talking about the carrots. I think the first Super Bowl ring was a quarter carrot. Yep. And that was it. Now you got 14K gold and... And 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 thirty six carrots in the ring. Oh, we got rubies, and you, I'm like, damn. Like, uh, one ring, one of my favorite rings, as far as championship rings go, is Washington's um Super Bowl twenty two ring, hmm. and then also uh the seventy six Raiders uh championship ring, because it has a diamond for every win. And then it says pride and poise on each side. It says pride on one side, poise on the other. And it, it's just, 
it is the way the players designed it. And I don't even think players really design rings anymore, which is crazy because if you play for it, I want you to design your ring because you got to wear it for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the, the ring of the Jets in Super Bowl three. It's just an inconspicuous ring for such a monumentous mm. team. You know, you were 19 point underdogs. Man, you should have one of the biggest rings there is because of what that meant. You know, it solidified that the AFL could compete with the NFL. You know, even though we were going through the merger, it solidified that they could compete. And also, I tried to get this Super Bowl trivia back in February, but that's the Super Bowl that can never be replayed because the Jets can never play the Colts ever again in a Super Bowl. Right. So, but I mean, you get through that, and then once you you think, okay, once I get to the bus, that's it. No, you get to the hall of bus, and it start it's broken down by year. So you start from sixty three, and you go all the way up, even to this year. They have all the empty spaces for this year, and they're they're so, ready. So let me dig into that real quick because. Is it like by the year you're enshrined into the hall? Yes. The bus goes up or the mm-hmm. new plate? Nope. The so year you're enshrined. Yep. Okay. okay. So, then so of you course. You see that a section where Monk and Daryl Green were and like just just took pictures and let go because that those are your guys. Like yes. If anybody's listening to the show, um, Monk and Daryl Green are definitely like if there's two people that you talk about a lot kg it's definitely those two yes because i mean that's a representation of my my fandom for this team because for the long well let's put it this way the first 27 years of my life mm-hmm. i could also i could honestly say well not, not even 27 let me take that back the first 22 years one constant for my life as far as I can remember, was Daryl Green being a Redskin. Mm. And, you know, everybody said, well, he in his 40s, he ain't as good as he used to be, and yada, 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 and whoop de whoop And I'm like, dude, this dude's 40-some years old, and he's still running a 4-2-40. And, like, he ran a 4-1 barefooted at 42. Like, you really want, want to test this dude's speed? Like, he is father time. Maybe he can't play on the outside and he can't cover these new receivers like he used to, but I would take him at four at 45. I wanted him to come back <laughs> and play right. because we needed corners. Yep. And it's just things you can't teach him. And one thing about Daryl Green and the boss BJ will tell you this. We were working down ESPN zone. I was 18. I had just started playing uh semi-pro ball with, with, with BJ. BJ was a running back. At that time, I was at. They had moved me to corner. I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to move out to safety, but they had to move me to corner because we were short. And me being me, and I'm trying to learn the position. I'm looking at Daryl Green, and my feet are a little bit bigger than Daryl Green's, and I'm trying to ride side saddle like Daryl Green. And I'm getting burnt. I he was down there with his dad, and he was just blending in with everybody. And B said, "Hey, Daryl Green over there. Won't you go talk to him?" I mustered up enough courage. I went over there 
and I spoke to him. I said, how you doing, Mr. Green? I'm a big fan of yours. I've been a fan of yours all my life. I'm a Redskins fan. I'm just starting to learn the cornerback position to actually play. And I keep trying to imitate you, but I keep getting my feet tangled up. He didn't blow me off. He didn't look at me like I was crazy. He said, oh, man, you got to work on your footwork. He said, learn how to backpedal first. Then once you get that turn, you keep up with him. He was like, you keep, you know, some some way you got to keep him in your peripheral. But when he turn around, you turn around. Next thing I know, I go to practice two days later. I'm swatting down passes. I'm picking stuff off. You know, I'm like, all right, I got advice how to play the cornerback position from one of the greatest cornerbacks of all time. And people say, well, it didn't really count. Why the hell didn't it count? Because that 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 knowledge that he put on me, that little bit of tidbit of knowledge, right. I took that, learned the position a little bit more, also learned the safety position. And I could sit down and watch football. I'm like, oh, yeah, he about to get burnt. Because I'm able to decipher and know what I'm seeing, but also I can pass it on also. And I'm always grateful for that when it comes to uh, Daryl Green. So always going to be one of my guys. Always. Yeah, I think I um, I think I rented Daryl Green a car when I was at Enterprise in Sterling, at BMW Sterling. Because um, it was black owned and those him and those guys were real tight. So I know I did that. And then one day... Because of our location, I had to go out to um, Redskins Park. The only time I've ever been to the park and drop off a car. And it was the day after Daryl Green played his last game. And he was at the front desk, at the receptionist desk, because I guess Miss B wasn't there yet or whatever. And I remember joking with him, like, dog, that's crazy. You retire. And then they got you working in the front desk, you know, on the, the first day after you retire. Um, he kind of laughed at me, but, you know, it's funny as we grow up as fans, like the things that we had and the experiences we had. Um, so since you brought that up, I'm going to ask you something else. And I know you're not ready for this kind of, but did you go to like Carlisle or Frostburg um, when you were um, growing up? Always wanted to go to Carlisle. Always, and, I, you know, what's crazy is I always, I always, uh, I always wrote letters every training camp mm. and those letters never got there. I know, but my <laughs> mom, my God, mom, they put them, they put them in the mail and, you know, I always heat praise on the team and things like that. As a kid, I wrote letters, everybody, you know, I would write a letter to anybody, man. Just, Hey, this is your year. You got this, but no, nah, I never got a chance to go. I, uh, I was supposed to go to Richmond a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And I had it all set up. BJ was gone. He was taking the family. I was taking my girls and the boys. We was all going to ride down. And that Saturday, well, I'm sorry, that Thursday, my general manager at my job at the time was like, yeah, everybody got to work. And I was like, Slim, I can't work. I got things to do. I'm going to Richmond this weekend. He was like, oh, well, you're going to have to postpone that. Oh, we, we, we had a problem from that day forward. <laughs> it was done. It was over. Like, dude, we, we can't do it. But I always wanted to go to training camp and maybe just maybe I may maybe may be able to make it down since it's gonna be in uh at Redskin Park this year. Maybe I'll be able to make it in. So so I was fortunate because my dad was part of the Pigskin Club. So every year we used to have a trip that went to Carlisle. So the first year I went was 
83. It was after the Super Bowl year. So the first two people I meet, Russ Grimm, Mark May. And like, there's this picture with this little kid with a big bush um, standing in between those two gentlemen. Uh, and they were the first people that my pops introduced me to. Um, then I had um, my infamous lunch with Otis Wansley because as a kid, I just wandered off to the wrong section of the lunchroom. So I sit down, this guy comes over, sits down, introduces himself, and me and Otis Wansley have lunch. And then he knows we're part of a group, so he walks me over to where my dad and them are and gets me linked back up to the group. And um, like from that point on, I was always, if anybody ever asked me, like, who's my favorite Washington running back? It's always um, Otis Wansley, just because of that moment. Uh, and what he did, you know, that, that's a lot for an athlete and a pro athlete to just take some kid and, you know, make sure he's safe and all that stuff. So, um, but yeah, I had plenty of trips to Carlisle where I got different stories like that or different moments. I got the infamous one where um, we're getting on the bus and everybody's like, well, who's the player that stood out for you? And I'm like, yo, I don't know who this guy Brian Mitchell is, but Brian Mitchell's going to be a player. Um, so, you know, from that point, everybody kind of remembered it, and was, we always joke about it. But like Carlisle was a different experience. It was it was amazing to see those guys and the way Coach Gibbs made those guys available to us as fans. Um, I did a Frostburg trip, and it was just different. Um, it didn't have the same energy and the same level. And I think that's part of the problem that this team and these leagues are having is um, they're losing the younger fans because they're not catering to them. You know, um, we're at a point now where basketball games like this final series starts at nine o'clock. You know, some kids are in bed at nine o'clock. You know, I remember at 4.30, like, or five o'clock on Sundays having dinner and Boston and LA is on as I'm eating, you know what I'm saying? And we got to make sure the TV's on because my dad ain't missing a minute of the game. So the evolution of the game is definitely different and fandom is definitely different um, as well. Um, I know we're getting close. I don't know how much time we got. I don't want to get no fines from the boss. So what we looking like on time? Uh, we, we, we hovering. We 34 and 30 seconds. So we, we got a little time. We got a little bit more time. All right. So just I'm just going to ask you, um, since we just wrapped up the NBA Finals, uh, everybody's been trying, to, and I don't like this, but everybody likes to put people in their places in history as far as status and their numbers. So where would you rank Steph Curry now as after he's got his finals MVP, he's got four titles, um, he's got two MVPs, um, one finals MVP. Like where does Steph have a place in the lexicon of basketball? And we're talking all time? All time. I still think he's a top 25 player, but okay. people are talking about he's the greatest point guard of all time. He's – I said this the other day and on a post. The thing with – and Isaiah Thomas said it, and I just reiterated what Isaiah Thomas said. He's not a point guard. You got to put Steph in the same category with AI. You know, they, they, they revolutionized the game. And I always – I say it half-heartedly uh, – jokingly but it's true i say steph ruined the game and people say why would you say that you hate no i love steph steph ruined the game because nobody sees the work that he puts in to be able to shoot like that to be 
Steph's shooting is it overshadows the other things that he does. Because when that dude gets to the lane, mm-hmm. he knows how to catch the angle and just drop it off the glass. He can drop it high off the glass and it's going in. And I love that about him, but nobody sees the work that he puts in on those things. For as an all-time player, he's top 25. Is he top 10? No. Just because you, we can't really judge a player as career-wise before they stop playing. Mm. We couldn't, you know, at one point in time, we called Carl Malone the greatest power forward ever. Then Timmy D came along. He was like, well, Timmy D might be a little bit better. And then it was a debate who was one and who was two because Carl Malone was still great. And, you know, but, oh, man. Then after Tim Duncan retired, you automatically knew he was number one. Malone was number two. You know, but then you still have so much to add in because you have to add in the Kareems, the Wilts, the, the, the Bill Russells. Of course, MJ. You want to put LeBron up there. You want to put Kobe up there. And, and the thing is, people have Kobe beneath LeBron. And I'm like, well, shouldn't Kobe be ahead of LeBron? The way y'all hate LeBron so much, shouldn't Kobe be ahead of LeBron? You know, it, it, but is Steph top 10 like everybody's saying this week? No. No. Top 25. He's a great player. And if I'm not mistaken, he was on the uh, NBA 75th anniversary team, which he belongs on. He belongs there. That's one that I didn't I didn't doubt. He belongs there because he's this generation's guy. And that's one thing that I can say about LeBron. LeBron has foes. MJ didn't have the foes. You know, he had guys that could hang with him for a little bit, but he didn't have that. Bird had magic. Russell had Wilt. Who did MJ have? You know, unfortunately, today is the day that MJ's nemesis, his 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 driving force, passed away in '86 mm. because it was supposed to be Lynn Bias. Right. It was that's who it was supposed to be, and MJ didn't have that. Steph has LeBron. Now he also has KD. He has Giannis. He has all these contemporaries that he can battle against. And if it goes the next five to six years and these guys trade off on winning championships, we are in for a great round of basketball. And yeah, the boss, BJ, time. say, oh, you got it. Yeah. No, you could, yeah. He said if LeBron had any type of talent on those early Cleveland teams, he'd have more rings. I think there was one team he took. Where it's um, Larry Hughes, Eric Snow, um, Zadrunas, and maybe Anderson Virgil. Some <laughs> iteration of that team. Yeah. I mean, and, I lo- and, and you know, I'm, I'm a weird person because I like athletic wings. So Larry Hughes is one of my guys um, when he came out of St. Louis. Um, him and um, Q Rich, uh, which is kind of odd because most people don't have those guys in their list of the guys that they, they love and follow. But. Um, when we talk about the top 25, um, Steph's definitely in the top 25. Do I put him in the top 10? No. Um, the other thing that annoys me is they say Steph changed the game. And I get a little irritated by it because um, 
you, you're you're taken away from guys like Don Nelson, and even though I don't like Dan Tony, you're taken away from Dan Tony because he's one of the, those are the first two coaches I've ever seen have a, a flex four out on the perimeter shooting the jump shots. Um, those are guys that encouraged a lot of three point shooting early on in their careers, and now we're to this point where the analytics have us at this point where um, you're seeing forty three pointers shot in a game by one team, let alone you know, guys are shooting 11 three-pointers in a game by themselves. And that didn't used to happen. And now we're at that point where that's going to happen. And unfortunately, we're going to get to the point where um, it's probably going to be 50 or 60 three-pointers shot in a game as as just the norm. And that's not a that's not to knock stuff or anybody like that. But I always say the greatest shooter of my lifetime is still going to be Larry Joe Bird. But Steph is close. And you can call me a hater all you want, but that's that's just how I see it. I never saw anybody shoot better than Larry Joe. And then the boss jumps in and says, changing the game would be them moving the three-point line back because of him. Uh, didn't you have a quote earlier this week about Wilt? Yeah, they changed the game. They widened the lane to neutralize Wilt. They made Golden in the thing to neutralize Wilt. They made... Uh, Three second violation, a thing to neutralize Wilt. And, and Will Chamberlain said it to Michael Jordan until they change the go. game for you to stop you, you can't never be the GOAT. Yeah, it is. It's one of the greatest statements ever made, man. And that was a dinner with him. I think it was Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, and a couple of other legends. And they were sitting down having dinner. And that was it, and I was just like, "Wow, wow!" I, but it's the truth. And Steph, no, people think I hate Steph. No, I don't. I think he's one of the smoothest shooting dudes in the in the NBA right now. In this generation, I think he's the greatest shooter of this generation. But you know, I agree with you when we talking all the time. I seen the hit from Flint, French Lick hit shots, and it wasn't just about threes. When we talking shooting, I'm talking anywhere on the floor. Right. And if you want to talk about long range shooting, I seen Pistol Pete hit stuff before it was a three point line. All right. So, you know, you got to go back. But when people say stuff about Steph and this generation of how great these guys are and this, that, and the third, they never want to give credit and pay homage <laughs> to the ones that came before. It's always well they couldn't play in it. I like when JJ Reddick says that. Oh, they played against plumbers and firemen. What? I would love to see JJ Reddick play in this generation because this generation fits him more. He would be a Hall of Famer in this in this generation because that was JJ Reddick's game. This dude used to come down a court and pull up from the EA Sports logo at Duke and knock it down like it was nothing. Yeah. This is his generation. JJ Reddick just played in the wrong generation. And JJ Reddick has some fucking nerve. Well, yeah. I mean, but JJ Reddick is a plumber or fireman. He was a journeyman. But now you got a thing on TV where you don't want to say anything about and it's it seems like that's the thing. When you talk about LeBron, you talk about Steph, it's like you have to diminish the Bill Russell era and the Wilt Chamberlain era. You have to diminish the magic era. You got to diminish the 90s. You got to diminish the early 2000s because this is the greatest generation of basketball. It is not. Because we've gone so far away from fundamentals that I can't even watch AAU ball 
because it's always some kid trying to cross somebody. I think I, I don't know if you ever seen the video. If I find it, I will send it to you. Okay. Young dude, he out there at AAU. His his boy, they double teaming him. Dude walks with his hand to the up in the air to the basket, like dude, right here. He's sitting there out of the three point line, trying to cross him, trying to bring him back, trying to cross him, trying to bring him back, trying to cross him, trying to. Bring, and he did this for about two minutes, and then he pulls up and shoots the air ball. We used to have a guy when I was in elementary school. They used to do that. He wanted to dribble all the time, and he that's all he wanted to do. We used to call him Speedweed. So it got to the point that when he would start dribbling, we would take the ball from him. We would we would be on his team. We would steal the ball from him and then move the ball around because he would stand there and try to cross you over and do all this. We would steal the ball from him. And then it just got to the point where we just stopped picking them all together. Once we stopped picking them and stopped playing with them, then he started passing the ball. These kids don't understand that. You got to start taking the ball from these youngsters. And – you know, I'm told that, you know, I'm harsh because if we got a fast break, you got a two on one fast break. And you pull up for a three. I'm calling timeout immediately. You're coming to sit beside me for the rest of the game. I don't care if you're my best player. You're coming to sit beside me for the rest of the game. That's yeah, just me, though. That's definitely that's definite, um, fundamental shift in basketball. Um, guys like us, because we grew up. And we were taught a certain way and we were taught by great coaches that when you get a coach that, you know, just rolls the ball out and says, hey, go get them guys or whatever, um, it's different for us. So it's hard for us to adjust and understand that. So I definitely get where you're coming from. Um, KG, my guy, I got to say, first and foremost, thank you for even giving me this opportunity to talk to you about your great experience at Canton. Like I, when I saw you do it, I was like, I got to sit down and talk with you about it. I got to like chop this up because that's a place I've died, been dying to go to and I just haven't gotten a chance. So I definitely appreciate you for that, man. I appreciate you for just including me in this conversation, bro. Oh, not a problem. And I appreciate you suggesting the idea. And I'm, I'm man, I feel great to talk about it because that was the first time, but I've already said it won't be the last because definitely. If we got to rent a 15 passenger van <laughs> and we got the pile in and we can take turns driving because it's only a six hour drive, six yep. hours and some change. And I, I drove three hours to get there, three hours okay. down and three hours back and driving down. I drove through Cleveland and a couple of other small towns. And then once I left, I went around the other way and drove through Akron and then a bunch of. Ohio has a lot of small towns. And then I'm driving back to, I went through Toledo and I went up, I had to come down through Detroit to come back. So I was like, okay, I'm good. But I got back in less time. So it was an excellent experience. If we ever have to do it, I'm down for it. I say we do it. Okay. Um, Man, all we need is gas and snacks. That's it. <laughs> That's what's up, man. Hey, we just want to go ahead and wrap it up. I first and foremost want to thank the boss, BJ, my man, KG, for even giving me this opportunity. Um, Sideline Junkies, Midnight Rider, um, Sunday morning, pod. 
is, is that what it's called? The Sunday morning podcast or the Sunday morning the rise? Sunday the morning rise. rise. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah, I gotta get that right. So the next time I do one, I get it right in the beginning. But <laughs> also, um, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Um, if your father isn't here, um just hug those people with a little extra tighter because they missing something special. And if you got little ones, hug them a little tighter because you never know how long you're gonna be here. Just time time waits for no one. So I'm the Midnight Rider. That's my man KG. I guess we don't do any overtime is how it ends up. We out of here. Yeah, indeed we are. Peace. Peace. <laughs>